Turn please to 1 Timothy chapter number 3. Our brother has been ministering about a man in the house of God. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 14. Paul writing to Timothy, These things writing unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou, allow a better reading, more critical translation, how one, how anyone ought to behave in the house of God, which is church, of the living God, pillar and ground of the truth. Now keep your Bible open to that section, but as well turn back to Genesis and chapter number 28. Genesis 28, this of course is the incident of Jacob as he is fleeing from his brother and he lights upon a certain place and he has a vision of the angels of God ascending and descending upon a way cast up to heaven and God speaks to him and Jacob will break in at verse number 16 and Jacob awaked out of his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not and he was afraid and said how dreadful now just so you don't get the wrong idea we use the word awful in a wrong way it really means full of awe how full of awe is this place how dreadful is this place this is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it and called the name of that place Bethel but the name of that city was called Luz at the first and Jacob vowed a vow saying of God will be with me and keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace then shall the Lord be my God and this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house and of all that thou shalt give me I will surely give a tenth unto thee. Now before you condemn Jacob, keep in mind this is before the law. And there was no requirement on Jacob's part to give. So please don't think he's only giving a tenth. How, how miserly. We trust God will add his rich blessing to the reading of his word. A house gives a an insight and a reflection of the man whose house it is. It is not likely any of us here, I think our brother Hoy has the best chance because he lives the closest, none of us here will ever be invited to Bill Gates' home. Right? Yet his house reflects something of the greatness of a man. What is its market value? I think $150 million. And it's yearly real estate tax is something like 1.5 million and uh, it's manicured landscapes grounds that require a full time group of men to keep it's setting overlooking the, uh, the water it's grandeur I understand that if you're a guest in the home 
you receive a little computer chip to wear on your lapel or on your on your coat that adjusts light and heat in every room you walk into according to your preferences. All of those things reflect and give insight into the, the character, the care, the concern, the greatness, the wealth of a man whose house it is. We have read together of House of God, 1 Timothy chapter 3. So I want to talk to you today, if I can, just in the closing moments of our morning session, on discerning, discerning the basics, but displaying the beauty. Discerning the basics and displaying the beauty. House of God. Now just for the sake of young Christians, older ones are familiar with this, so bear with me for just a few moments. I want to impress upon you the value, as you're studying your Bible, our brother has given us tremendous helps already, some help relative to what we have been taught as the law of first mention. We have read together of the first mention in our Bibles of house of God. It was a man called Jacob, as he is alone with God, and he has a revelation of God, and he realizes that God is in this place, and he calls it house of God. The first place that God mentions a truth that is going to be very, very important to the Word of God, he will link with it truths that will be true all the way through the Word of God, wherever that subject is found. So every time you come to house of God in the Word of God, whether you're looking at Jacob at Bethel, whether we're looking at the temple or the, ta- or the tabernacle or the temple or a New Testament assembly, certain truths will be found in every single instance where house of God is mentioned. God will enlarge upon it as He proceeds through Scripture. He will give us fresh insights, fresh truth related to it, but the basic premises will always be present wherever you find house of God. So I want to just point out four couplets found in Genesis 28 and show you how relevant they are to our assembly gatherings today. So that in Genesis 28, I find, first of all, residency and reverence. Residency and reverence. God is in this place. How full of awe this place is. This is a place that is awful, dreadful. A place that demands my reverence. God's residency and reverence. Number one. Number two. Authority and administration. Now that will take a little explaining. People, uh, when they preach sometimes, reveal a lot about themselves. So you'll know how uh, simple my mind is. That for many, many years I read Gate of Heaven and thought that Jacob meant this is, this is really the first step on the way to heaven. But that's not the idea of Gate at all. You remember, don't you, that um, Lot sat in the Gate of Sodom. And the people said, this man has come in and must needs be a judge. Remember as well, don't you, a little further on, we read about Boaz when he wants to purchase Ruth. He sits in the gate. He calls for the elders and they sit in the gate. Remember, don't you as well, Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman, her husband is known in the gates when he sits with the elders. Matthew 16, the Lord Jesus Christ says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the gate in the the city was the place of administration. The place where... The decisions were made that controlled what went on in the city. And so this is the gate of heaven. Jacob is learning. Heaven is in control. Heaven is administrating. 
And so linked with that, administration and authority. What is the authority in the local assembly? It is heaven's administration through the word of God. And we'll see how sobering, how searching, and how solemn that is in a few moments. So, residency and reverence. Administration and authority. Presence and purity. Now, we didn't read it. We could read it. Genesis 35, God tells Jacob, Go back to Bethel, where I appeared unto you. And Jacob immediately says, Without a word from God, with no instruction, with no admonition, with no warning, Jacob says to everyone, Put away the strange gods, and change your garments, and be clean. God's presence demands purity in my life. And lastly, commitment and consecration. Jacob is not making a bargain with God. If God will be with me, then I will do this. That word, if, unfortunately, we we link always with conditions. But many times in the Word of God, it's the idea of since. In light of the fact God will be with me, then I will give God, and so on. So it is God committing himself to Jacob. And Jacob consecrating himself to God. So four couplets that will be found as we trace the teaching of house of God throughout our New Testament. Residency and reverence, authority and administration, presence and purity, and commitment and consecration. Now as I said, they will be present every time we come to house of God. Now God will, as I said, enlarge. When you come to the tabernacle, God adds the idea of offerings. When you come to the temple and you read especially of Solomon's consecration, you find that God is adding intercession and he is adding treasures. But now we read about treasures in the house of God. When you come to the book of Haggai and the rebuilding of the temple, you read how that God will, number one, take pleasure in it. God's great pleasure is in the house of God. You read that God is, is going to one day complete his great purpose is that this temple, this house of God today is just a foreshadowing of a far greater thing that's coming. And so God will add, he will increase, he will develop the theme, but he comes back constantly. I believe it was Mr. Fisher Hunter. I'm sorry. Um, Jack Hunter. Got my hunters wrong. Jack Hunter used to say that God's first thoughts are God's last thoughts. God's first thoughts about the house of God will be God's last thoughts about house of God. Residency and reverence, authority and administration, presence and purity, commitment and consecration. Discerning the basis. That's the basic truths relative to house of God that we have in our New Testament. But let me talk to you about displaying the beauty. Displaying the beauty of God's house. Now this is not just for overseers. This is not just for older Christians who bear the burden and responsibility of testimony. If you have taken upon yourself to come into assembly fellowship, however young you might be, however limited you might think your role is as a young believer, you have the responsibility of displaying the beauty of God's house. What a tremendous privilege. 
that in what we are going to look at, we can actually display something of God's beauty. Let me talk to you then, and I'm going now to come to 1 Timothy, especially, just you're familiar with it, we'll just, let, we'll just highlight a few things. Talk to you about residency and, and reverence. That's chapter 2, isn't it? That's chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, where he speaks about the reverent attitude of our brethren as they rise and speak to God in prayer, and the reverent attitude of sisters in their behavior, in their demeanor, in their dress. So let me just mention that for just a moment. We have the attitude and the activity of brethren in chapter 2. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. The tremendous privilege of displaying, as we pray, reverence for our God. Holy hands. Hands that are marked by a a consciousness of the God to whom we come. That to be consistent in our prayer life, to be consistent in our assembly life, we are coming to a God who deserves absolute reverence from us. Now you all know those expressions that occupy 1 Timothy chapter 2. Where Paul speaks of prayer, intercession, supplications, giving of thanks. Have you ever thought that how you pray, how I pray, reveals what we think of God? What we know and think of God is revealed by our prayer life. Paul uses the word, I will therefore that the men pray everywhere. He speaks about prayer. That's coming to one who is sovereign. That's coming to one who is supreme. I mean... Heathen men pray to their idols because they feel there's something above them. We come to the living God. In all of His greatness, He is supreme and sovereign and over all. But why then do we supplicate? Why do we come asking God for things? Because in His sovereignty, He's able to give. Why do we come making intercessions? Because we have a God who is absolutely sufficient to to intercede for us and to answer prayer. And we give thanks because we come to a God who satisfies and who gives so freely. And so in all of that we are revealing something of of the greatness of the God to whom we come. Little wonder then that Paul elsewhere in his epistle says that if the assembly is functioning as it ought... People will come in and say, God is in you of a truth. And not just confess it, but actually fall down and acknowledge it. Such is the greatness, such is the awesomeness of the God to whom you are coming. That men will recognize His worth and His greatness just by the way we are praying. Men lifting up holy hands. Here are men in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and they are praying for others to realize the awfulness of sin and turn to God. No, he says, how can, how can you be praying for that if your hands are stained with sin? If sin is a light thing for you, if you can come into the presence of God and feel that sin really is a, an innocuous minor thing and rise to speak to God. No, he says, you are coming into the presence of one who deserves reverence. One who deserves the highest place that can be given to him in all that you do. So there is then prayer recognizing the the greatness of our God, the attitude and activity of brethren. But then he speaks as well of the attitude and the attire of sisters. And he speaks about how the sisters should be attired and their silence and their subjection as they are in the presence of God. He speaks about modesty. He speaks about what is fitting and what is becoming. He speaks about what is consistent. 
So here is the assembly gathered together. And the assembly, sisters and brethren alike, are praying that ungodly men will recognize the value of the eternal over the temporal. And that they will recognize the value of the internal over the external. Now he says, if the way you're all dressed is inconsistent with that request, if all of your emphasis is upon the outward and not the inward, if all of your emphasis is upon the temporal and not the eternal, there's a disconnect. So he says, reverence should mark all of us in our dress. Now this is not a... This is not a javelin at anybody. I am not here to tell you how to dress. The Word of God gives you principles. doesn't give you lengths of skirts. doesn't give you rules and regulations. It gives you principles. The principle of modesty. The principle of reverence. Could I just make a plea for just a moment? Men who move in the workforce, individuals who move out there in that real world will know what I'm referring to. An assembly should be, ought to be, a safe haven for a man's eyes. You know what I mean. Where you work, as you move about, You have to train your eyes to look away from certain things if you're a man. You have to learn to instinctively look away. An assembly should be a place where a brother does not have to come in and worry that I might see something that will cause me to have to turn away. It should be a safe haven for a man's eyes. Modesty should mark all of our attire. Now you may say, well, that's just a man's problem. Yes, it is a man's problem. It is every man's problem without exception. And it behooves every sister to dress in such a way that she is recognizing both the reverence of the residency of God in the house of God and as well that she is aware of the fact that she wants nothing to distract anyone from the central purpose of the gathering being occupied with the person of Christ and carrying out all the functions of house of God. Residency and reverence. Let me talk about authority and administration for just a moment. If residency and reverence are going to reflect something of the worth of the God of the house, the authority and administration are going to reflect something of the will of the God of the house. Remember, don't you, the Lord Jesus Christ praying, or teaching, rather, teaching His disciples to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that has never yet occurred and awaits a coming day of millennial glory when God's will will be carried out perfectly upon earth under the benign under the gracious, under the blessed administration of the Son of Man. But, that should be carried out in every assembly. Heaven's administration 
carried out in local companies of God's people. You will realize, I think, if you just allow your mind to think of it for a moment, that really the assembly, in many, many ways, is a microcosm of millennial days. You may say, millennium? my assembly is far from the millennium. Okay, agreed. But it ought to be in the sense of the, the character of a local company. You remember, don't you, that uh, in the coming day, millennial glory, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. No one have to say to his brother or sister, know the Lord. All shall know me, God says. What does Paul say to the Corinthians? You're filled with all knowledge. You're filled with knowledge at Corinth. You come behind in no gift. They were, they were filled with the knowledge of God. Every assembly, as our brother reminded us, ought to be a place where the knowledge of God is seen in all of its greatness and fullness. So, as far as millennial conditions, the earth filled with the knowledge of God, that's what an assembly ought to be. What about uh, millennial conditions when the saints will judge angels? Well, that's the very reason Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians 6. You should be carrying out righteous judgment now in the assembly. A day is coming when you'll be responsible to rule for God. Now that administration should be seen here in your local company right at this point in time. What about the truth of headship that will one day be one of the great glories of Christ as he is head over all things? That headship is seen in display even this very moment in sisters with heads covered and brethren with heads uncovered. So millennial conditions reflected today. What about what we read about in First um, Corinthians chapter 13? The reign of love and peace. That should mark a local company. That chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, is not a chapter just for wedding ceremonies. Really it was the, the cure, the panacea for all of Corinth's problems to, to display divine love one towards another in all of their dealings. Psalm 110 tells us that in that day, thy people shall be willing offerings. Millennial glory, people willingly consecrating themselves to God, to Christ. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. You see, in that day, in that day, men will vie for the chance to be able to be servants of God. It's open to every one of us now. Heaven's administration. And there are other things that could be thought of as well. The recognition, God all in all, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That will be true in millennial conditions. So that the, the administration that will one day fill the earth should be filling a local assembly right now. God's administration. And the result of that is, how is the will of God to be communicated in a local assembly? It's not by 800 toll-free numbers to heaven. Through the Word of God. This book that we have in our hands is the will of God revealed to us. I don't know if those in responsibility feel anything of what I feel. I think you do. But to realize that when those in responsibility make a decision relative to assembly functioning, we are claiming this is heaven's decision. Tremendously sobering. Not just a matter of my preferences, not just a matter of my uh, biases, but actually we are administrating heaven's will here in the local assembly on earth. And we are doing it through the word of God. And we are carrying out, actually carrying out. You know, our own 
governmental system of legislative and executive and judicial, well, heaven legislates. We execute. We don't legislate. We are carrying out heaven's legislation in our local assembly. Very, very searching. So we have administration and we have authority. And of course, that's what Paul comes to, isn't it, in these chapters in 1 Timothy. In chapter number 4, he reminds them that till he comes, he says, give attendance to what? To the public reading of God's Word. Keep the Word of God at the forefront. I think our brother Logan used the expression the other day in ministry that every meeting should be a Word of God meeting. The Word of God opened. The Word of God given its place. The Word of God controlling every aspect of the gathering. And so we have then uh, the heaven's authority and heaven's administration. Just briefly, God's presence and the purity it demands. And so in chapter 4, what does Paul tell Timothy? Timothy, I want you to be a pattern. Be thou an example. Timothy, your light is to be absolutely spotless. You are to be marked by meeting God's standard for a believer. Now let me just say this. Because I think there is a tremendous, tremendous confusion. And maybe we are responsible for it. Whether you are saved and not baptized, which is sort of a contradiction, but if you're saved and not baptized, and if you're saved and baptized and not in the assembly, and if you're saved and baptized and in the assembly, and you would say just, you know, one of the normal average sheep in the flock, or whether you were saved, baptized in the assembly and in a place of responsibility and leadership. God has one standard of living. It isn't that when you come into the assembly you start living a holy life. It isn't when you decide to get baptized that now I've really got to kind of clean my act up and start living better. Or, uh, well, it's okay for me, but, um, you know, he's, he's one of the leaders and he can't do what I'm doing. No. God has only one standard of living for all believers. Be ye holy, for I am holy. And so Paul gives injunction to Timothy here to be a pattern. That his life might be spotless, his life might be able to to be followed by others, and he speaks about the, the standard of Christian living. Be thou a pattern. Be thou an example. So to Timothy, to the sisters, in chapter 5, what does he speak about there? He speaks about the piety of the, of the women. Not just as their widows, but in their married days as well. But when they were married, this is how they lived. And now that they're widows, they continue this way. And so he expects piety. He expects purity. He expects pattern living. And at the beginning of chapter 5, where he's talking about relationships among believers, speaking about... Timothy and his dealings with the elders, his dealings with the widows, his dealings with the young women, and so on, all is to be marked by purity. Above reproach, above anything questionable. Purity because of the presence of God. But I want to come especially to commitment and consecration as seen in Timothy's life and house of God. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. There is someone who has committed himself to every gathering of the people of God. I don't mean every meeting. I mean every assembly. Not just when we're together. He has committed himself to us. To be with us. Now when Jacob realized that God had committed himself to be with him. 
to keep him in all his ways, to be everything Jacob needed for the journey of life. Jacob realized, the only thing I can do, the only rational, reasonable response of my soul is absolute consecration to this God. Now, I know Jacob had many lessons to learn. And uh, someone has said, um, look in the mirror and you'll see a little Jacob. Jacob was a great man. But I want, to, I want you to bring you to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I want to talk first of all about consecration, gift and its development. Gift and its development. Is, is house of God worth it? Is house of God worth it that you pour yourself into developing whatever ability God has given you for Him? If we turn to the Old Testament, we read of a man named Ezra, one of the great men of the Old Testament. One of the unsung heroes in my own thinking. He was a man who had set himself to seek and to do and to teach the law of the Lord. He didn't just set himself to teach it, to seek it, to do it, and to teach it. That's chapter 7. You know how chapter 7 ends? You know the result of a man who gave himself to teaching the Word of God, to doing it and teaching it, as he is going up to Jerusalem with all the king had given him. He marvels that God had put into the heart of the king such a thing as this, to beautify the house of the Lord. So a man who had given himself, devoted himself to the Word of God, with a desire to be able to be a help to God's people, to develop his usefulness, he ends by beautifying the house of God. Do you have any interest in beautifying God's house? Any interest in making God's house more, more attractive, more delightful, first of all to Him, then to other believers, then to unsaved? Timothy is told here in chapter 4 he says neglect not the gift that is in thee which was given thee by prophecy and so on meditate upon these things give thyself wholly to them you know what, you know what really Paul is telling Timothy there is a, an octet of obligations that ends chapter 4 well worth looking at but uh, you know what he's really telling him let it be in you and you be in it immerse yourself in whatever God has given you to do What our brother just gave you in 40 minutes of ministry. Now, I, I'm using him as an example. I hope he will not mind. Probably as a result of years of study of the Word of God. You realize men stand up here and give you in 30 minutes what they may have taken 30 years to glean. And you may come away with one thing for your soul. And I think any man who has done it would say 30 years... If you leave with one thing in your soul to help you for God, it was 30 years well spent. It doesn't come overnight. Jack Hunter used to say you can read your Bible casually, you know, against the sugar bowl as you're running out to school in the morning. You can read it carefully. Or you can read it critically. To really know God in His Word. If you're going to be a help, if you're going to grow and develop and be useful for God relative to your gift, whatever it is, whatever ability God has given you, it is going to mean an investment of time. 
And so Paul says, don't neglect it. You be in it and let it be in you. And you won't have to push yourself forward. He says, your profiting will appear in all things or to all, whatever whatever translation you wish to use. It will be evident that God is developing you and God is bringing you forward for His work. So, consecration relative to gift and its development. But I want to talk to you about consecration relative to growth. Growth for God and character. Now, I don't want to minimize or demean service for God. But I do want to emphasize growth in character for God. Likeness to Christ. That's something that we scarcely give a thought to. We think about what we want to do. What we're going to accomplish. And I guess that's part of our Western mentality of um, type A's, of what we do giving us value, what we accomplish somehow reflecting on us as far as our importance. God is far more interested with character, even than gift. All of Joseph's usefulness as a young man, all of his usefulness, hinged on his character, not on his gift. Remember that. Someone has said, God used the faith of an Abraham to give birth to the nation. He used the character of a Joseph to preserve the nation. God is interested in what you are going to be, not just what you do. And so Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I want you to be an example Let no man despise thy youth. So he was under 40 years of age. But he says, be an example to believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in in, rather in faith and in in purity. He says, I'm interested in fruit, the fruit of character in your life. I'm interested in what you are, Timothy. Before ever you begin to preach to others, before ever you begin to tell others and lead them in the way they ought to go, Timothy, God is, is vitally concerned with character. Willing to make it a priority. You might say, well, how do I become like Christ? Uh, you know, it's, it's, I really would like to, and uh, I think, how do I become like Him? I think better men here could tell you that than I. But let me just tell you what the Word of God says. John 15 is a chapter all about fruit-bearing, about likeness to Christ. And in that section, the Lord Jesus Christ introduces something which may at first sound strange. He speaks about asking the Father, whatever we would ask the Father, the Father would give us, that the Father might be glorified. Herein is my Father glorified that you become my disciples. What the Lord Jesus Christ is saying in John 15, I think, is just this. That as I abide in Christ, as I allow His Word, this Scripture, to abide in me and I abide in it, I will become increasingly conscious, almost depressingly conscious, of how unlike Him I am. And He says, ask the Father. And the Father will give it. So shall ye become like me. So shall ye become my disciples. Discipleship has many, many facets. It's someone who is led by Christ. Right? It's someone who is learning from Christ. 
It's someone who loves Christ. But above all, it's someone who is like Christ. And so the Lord Jesus Christ says, as you become acutely aware of how unlike me you are, ask the Father. Now I should tell you, that can be a dangerous prayer. Because there can be some very painful things in life's experiences to make us more like Him. But willing, because of the house, because of the the God whom we represent in His house, am I willing to consecrate myself relative to any gift I have? Am I willing to consecrate myself to grow, to become more like Him in my life day by day? Am I willing to consecrate myself to guard the flock, to, to care for the house, relative certainly to, to those who are in a place of leadership, and a place of responsibility? Am I willing to, to really value the flock as God values to value the house as God values it? We've already had quoted in our hearing, Acts chapter 20. The church of God, which He has purchased with the blood of His own, now, you may have a different view than I, but let me just give you my view. Individuals are purchased by the blood of Christ. But every local company of believers can only exist because of the blood of Christ. There would have never been local churches gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus without the blood of His own. So every assembly is precious. It costs God His own Son to be able to have a group of believers gathered together however small. Notice there's not a mention here about size or success or numbers. Or No. In fact, God says to a remnant company, to a small despised group of Jews, go up to the mountain, bring wood, build my house, and I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified. House of God. We are displaying something of God's worth. We are reflecting God's will. We are reflecting God's ways. But as I pour myself in any measure I can, whether it is gift, whether it is growth of character, whether it is guarding the flock, I am revealing something of the wealth of God. Drawing upon His wealth. Part of the glory of Christ is He ascended up on high and He gave gifts to men. That's part of the great triumph of Calvary. Your ability to preach the gospel is because of Calvary and the wealth that he now has. He can, he can dispense gifts to men. Whatever it is, it comes because of him. So guarding the flock, caring for the flock. And let me just mention one other thing in closing, because it is mentioned here in First Timothy chapter 6. And that is not just consecration relative to gift, not just consecration relative to growth, consecration relative to guarding the flock that Timothy has given responsibility for, Consecration relative to giving. To giving. You notice, don't you, that uh, Jacob erects a pillar and he pours oil upon it and he is consecrating himself to God and linked with that, linked with that commitment and consecration was this, I will give. God, first of all, wants you to give yourself. But many, many ways, the test of a man's faith many times comes down to money. Money. That common thing we all crave and have, or want to have. Many times that becomes the ultimate barometer. 
Time doesn't allow it. You just look at it. Look at what men did with the spoils of war in the Old Testament, beginning with an Abraham as he returns to battle, and ending with an Achan who keeps it all for himself. What men did with the spoils of war was a barometer of their spirituality. When I come to First Timothy chapter 6 and house of God conditions and giving, you know what I learned? I learned, first of all, that God gives liberally. God gives liberally. So you will recognize the oxymoron of a stingy spiritual person. Right? God is a liberal giver. Those who want to be like God will become liberal givers. Linked with the house of God. Reverence because of residency. Authority because of God's administration. Purity because of God's presence. Consecration because of God's commitment. Is is the house of God is the house of God worth everything you can pour into it for Him? Simple question. Is it worth everything? It is reflecting. It is displaying. It is revealing to all that look on something of the greatness of the one whose house it is. See, it's not your assembly or mine. We speak of it that way, and I guess it's permissible from one standpoint. But in the end, house of God is revealing to everyone that looks on what kind of God you have. If your God doesn't deserve everything, then just live that way. If your God isn't worthy of your very best and of your all, then just live that way. But if the God you and I have is worthy of everything, and He is, then we should pour all we have into His assembly, into His house, that we might not just discern the basis, but that we might display the beauty for all to see.